Welcome to Literally Two Cents About Content, a podcast about what it's like to write for as little as two cents per word. I'm Alex. And I'm Elizabeth. We're going to talk about algorithms. First things first, what is an algorithm? So an algorithm is something that you hear about a lot in very different contexts. And it's it often will come up if you've ever done any sort of coursework in computer science. Your algorithms are absolutely central to the whole idea of programming a computer, telling a computer what to do. You can actually think of an algorithm as a set of instructions for a machine. So in a way, if you think about how you give instructions to a person, you say something like, get the key out of your pocket, put the key in the door, turn the knob, unlock the door, push the door in. So it's like a sequence of steps. And an algorithm for a computer is something that's very, it's very similar to that. So you're basically just telling the computer, hey, calculate this sum of numbers. So it could be something as simple as that. Or it could be something very complicated in the case of recommend to me a bunch of movies that I might like based on what I liked before. If you'll remember in episode 2A, we did talk about how IMDb, what was it called, IMDb? It's The new app yeah. actually does mm-hmm. that. Yeah, Amazon had a, had an app that it had branded under the IMDb brand, which Amazon owns. And it was basically an app to try and make it easier to find something to watch because there were just too many, too many options. There was too much content. So it's like you sit down in front of this huge grid of shows and you're like, where do I even start? The way all of these video streaming services, search engines, anything of that kind, they all use algorithms to make these recommendations. So they're not, in most cases, maybe there's some somebody out there who is handpicking things for each account. But I think for just the scale at which... I would not want to be that guy. Yeah, me either. <laughs> and it's pro- there's probably some like privacy and legal implications there too, like knowing too much about who you're recommending for, perhaps, if you're a person. Goodness. Yes, but not for companies. No, yeah. No. Not for customers. Yeah. So (laughs) this thing about algorithms. So you hear about a lot in computer science, of course, and you hear about it in social media or any anything about Google. So people will say, Google's algorithm just updated and now my page doesn't rank anymore. What they're saying there is that the way that Google, the instructions that Google has, that Google's engineers have written for its search engine have changed somehow. They they decided to rank something as more important and something as less important. To go back to the very basics here, I just do the cliched sort of dictionary definition, which in this case, I think is actually pretty helpful because you hear about algorithms all the time, but it almost becomes a nothing word because you hear it so often. You're like, well, the algorithm does this, the algorithm does that. But the, uh, yeah, the American Heritage Dictionary, they defined it as, quote, a finite set of unambiguous instructions that, given some set of initial conditions, can be performed in a prescribed sequence to achieve a certain goal and that has a recognizable set of end conditions. The unambiguous is very important. So we think of computers as being very uh, savvy and intelligent, but in a way they're quite dumb because they have to have everything boiled down to zero or one. So it has to be very unambiguous. The algorithm can't be like some kind of code that ends in an infinite loop or something that will not execute properly. And then it has to... Essentially, all of the options have to already be there. Yeah. Or have to be there in, like you're saying, in binary Mm -hmm. code. Yeah. It's written in like a high-level code, Java, or a programming language of that sort, and then it gets turned into binary code, and then the computer can actually do something with it. And then it has has a sequence, so an, an algorithm has to go through 
like a, a series of steps, just like a person when they're executing instructions. And then once it finishes, what it produces has to somehow be recognizable. It, what, what was this algorithm designed to do? Was it designed to sum and solve a math problem? Was it designed to serve articles back to you? The thing to, to remember about algorithms, it seems almost too obvious to say, but algorithms are something that machines do. They're not something that the humans do. This I recently looked at this essay called The Concept of Algorithm as an Interpretive Key of Modern Rationality. And it has two authors, Paolo Totoro and Domenico Nino. And in this essay, they talk about how algorithms have become a really important way to, to organize society. They talk about how algorithms are central to the idea of bureaucracy, so storing information, retrieving it, and using it to classify different types of objects. Early on in this essay, they say, quote, all machines run an algorithm. One can say that they are the materialization of an algorithm, which in itself is a logical object. So to break that down, a machine is basically an algorithm put into physical form, if you want to think about it. So like a computer is, what is a computer? It's something that is constantly running algorithms. It's running instructions all the time. It's running instructions on how to use its battery. The important part of the definition of algorithm here is repeatable. Yeah, that's definitely, yeah. That set of instructions has to be, and the tutorial, and they use the word recursive. Yeah. Like it has to be something that can be repeated. Yeah. The re um, they actually say, yeah, the, I think they, they say that the recursion is a quintessential feature of algorithms. And they, one of the things, so recursion is one of those things that can be quite confusing if you haven't gone into computer science before. And recursion, it means like you're referring to yourself, basically. So I believe there was a project called GNU and it's so it's, it's an operating system. It's similar to when people talk about Linux, GNU is similar to that. And, but it's, it has a, it's G, what does GNU stand for? U stands for GNU is not Unix. So the, it has its own name in its acronym. Oh, yeah. Man. Yeah. So it's, that is, recursive. yeah, that is recursive. So <laughs> it refers to it. I was trying to think of a very simple example to try and explain how recursion works and why people use it. So imagine you're trying to calculate the sum of all the numbers from zero to five. So if you were writing this in computer code, you could do it in two basic ways. So one way you could do it would be what's called the iterative approach where you write a for loop where you're like, here's this number. As long as this number is less than some number you've set, add one to that number. And then from there, you can create like an equation to put together all the sums that you, you, you calculate to that point. But with recursion, what you would do instead would be something like you would give it the argument. You would give, you would write a function, you would give it the argument of five. It would say, as long if it gets to zero in this function, but as long as it's not zero, you would subtract one from five, and then you would end up with a series of calculations, something like you would do five plus four, and then it would do five plus four plus three, and it would keep going through the loop, going down by one number each time until it got to zero. And then once it gets to zero, it knows, okay, that's it. Then at that point, it sums them all together and makes 15. So what it's doing along the way is it's basically deferring these operations. So it's doing five plus four. Oh, wait, I'm not at zero yet. So now let's do five plus four plus three. I'm not at zero. Let me do five plus four plus, and it keeps doing that. And from my understanding, this is considered more elegant. And I believe, and don't quote me on this, but I believe it's more memory efficient too. So it, 
the computer holds all of that in memory until it can get to the end and it puts it all together. So it's better for performance to do it that way. Okay. I'd like to stop. Yeah, sure. Because you at the beginning of this said that you were trying to think of a basic example. Mm -hmm. And all I could think of while you were saying all of that was this is why I was not a computer science major. Yeah, it's it's <laughs> tough. Because, yeah. But but I feel like that is a pretty good, actually basic example of recursion in computing mm -hmm. and why it's so difficult to talk about these things with any sort of effectiveness because the logic required is recursion. Yeah. It, the logic itself. So yeah. yeah, it's so recursion. Yeah, I did take computer science in high school and it was when we got to recursion, it, it was tough to get my head around it first. One way to think of it is that you're taking a big problem and breaking it down into a bunch of smaller problems. And right. um, I think they call you set what's called a base case. So in my example, zero is the base case, because at that point, the function becomes trivial. And there's nothing else to add. So, so what does this have to do with content? It's recursion of algorithms and so on. But any type of content that get anywhere. So like in, on a search engine, on Facebook, on TikTok, it's all algorithmically recommended. And in some cases, and the degree to which the algorithmicness of it is obvious, it varies by platform. So most people who go on Google, they're probably not thinking about the fact that the things there, those aren't some kind of objective list of the best resources for anything. It's just what Google's algorithm thinks in, in quotes. Wait, so the top, wait, so the top search result on Google isn't exactly what I want it to be all the time. And not only that, it's different for every person. And it's not the most it, popular and, one. <laughs> so I used different people can get the different top results too, based on their own search history and things like that, like their location even can, can affect it. Some search engines though, like DuckDuckGo do give the same, like the, if you and I did the same query, we would get the exact same results regardless of, but that's, that has to do with how the, how Google and DuckDuckGo differ in terms of like tracking and like, you can't, you don't have a DuckDuckGo account. It's just a site you go to, whereas Google, your results are going to be different if you're signed in versus if you're signed out. So everything on Google is algorithmically ranked and that algorithm is always changing. So it's, uh, so this is, this is sort of an interesting point because when we think of algorithms, algorithms come from the realm of computer science. So they're all, we often think of them as something that's, it's just math. And in a way it is, and, or it's just something that's neutral and cold. It's just code that's going through a machine. There's nothing sentimental about it or anything. So that gives it sort of the veneer of objectivity, but it's basically the exact opposite of the truth. Because if you follow stories about social media, or, or like I said about Google, like when Google does some update and then the owners of a website go crazy because all of a sudden they're not getting ranked on page one anymore. These algorithms are always being changed. Facebook is always the perfect example here because there's similar, there's not a day that goes by something like Facebook promises to tweak algorithm to stop spread of some, like they're promoting genocide, they're promoting misinformation. So Amnesty International, this is a quote from their site, from something they had on Facebook where they said, quote, algorithm changes which Facebook's own research found were fueling the spread of information, toxicity, and violent content. A lot of times the things that go viral on, on Facebook or on Twitter they often fit into a certain mold. They're sensational or they're, they're controversial. It's during the, I know during the 2016 election, it was, that was a pretty big deal about how Facebook was promoting types of content that were conspiratorial about certain candidates. But yeah. It's, and the other thing too is, so the same, so the same sort of bias that is built into every algorithm is also of course built into the way that search works. Google the types of content it's going to surface, in a way, it's looking for something very specific. Even if I wrote the best 
paper ever about how to check the DPI on your mouse, like explaining, just going right into it right away, saying do this. I would probably never rank as high as a really long article that started with something like, what is DPI? Mouse DPI stands for digitals, blah, 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 blah. And then something else that would then be something like checking your DPI is very important for gaming or something. A person would only mention that because they know that's some kind of keyword that when people who are searching for DPI or like for a mouse, they're usually gamers. So that because they're the only people who really would care about something like that. But there's like a formula for the way you would present that information so that Google would rank it highly. So it'd be something like you would always start off with what is DPI and then say DPI is, and then go into these different headers that had like questions in them. And then from there, you would probably have it end up being very long-winded. So it reminds me of how people complain a lot about when they look for recipes online, about how it like the three-fourths of the recipe is at the top of the page. <laughs> and it's just this person talking about their personal experience with the pina colada recipe that they are about to tell you about and you have to scroll all the way down the page to even get to the recipe it's because these recipe writers are trying to do seo <laughs> on their pages mm -hmm. right like they're putting the, the keywords and the content that google will rank better than if you were just like a blank page with four ingredients on it and some bullet points. The second one would be way more efficient because it'd just be like, here's a recipe, that's it. But you're totally right about how the, the incredibly long intro. And uh, I think I wrote about this in, in actually one of my Substack newsletters where I talked about how in SEO, it is, it is so important to get the intro. And one of the reasons for getting the intro right is because of something called snippets in Google. Like, I think they're called the featured snippets. So sometimes you'll ask Google a question, what does a yellow colored uh, RCA cable mean? What does that color mean? And the top result will be in a box. It won't even be, it won't even be in a search result. It'll be like, it's sometimes called, I think, result zero or something. Yeah, it's like a call, it's out, a call out box. box. You don't even have to leave yeah. the Google search interface to see it. A lot of times what's in that snippet is at the very beginning of an article. And it, I call this, I think I called this intro centric writing. So it's your, when you actually, when I was writing this type of content at a content mill, a lot of the time I spent was on the intro. So it was trying to figure out and not only trying to figure out how to present it early on, but also working within a specific limit. So I think it's something like you want your, if you're going for the featured snippet, you have to be under a certain number of characters. So you can't go past, and I, I might just, I'm just throwing out a number. I think it's like 50. Maybe it's 50 words or something. So you want to be under that. And then, so then, so that's really the most important thing. And then a lot of times the intros also get padded out with things like what I was talking about earlier, something along the lines of what is, and then insert whatever concept you're talking about. And one thing that occurred to me is that SEO writing is in a way, it's almost, it's like cliched, bad college freshman writing. It's the opposite because, of what they told you. Yeah, because it, cool. it's one of the things that they always tell you never to do is something like, since the dawn of time, mankind is always, <laughs> I remember I, I had a Shakespeare class and like people kept paying <laughs> for doing that. They were like, since the dawn of time, man has always loved William Shakespeare. Loved and they loved just storytelling. Yeah, something incredibly generic. And then also, this was also came up in, a, in a, another class that I took was that a lot of times it's better to write your intro last because you don't know what you're talking about yet. So like as, as you go along writing, 
what you're actually writing about might change and then your intro becomes irrelevant. And, but then trying to figure out the intro right away, I guess if you know exactly what you're going to say, that can be okay. But a lot of times it's better to revisit it later. But with SEO, really, you have to do it. You, really, the intro is... You have a very specific thing that you need to get onto the page. Yeah. And yeah, and the introduction is really important from that aspect. Yeah, the intro is very important. And considering how little time you have to work for on these articles, you don't really have the luxury of going back and tweaking your intro later. Maybe if, if it's a long, really long piece and you have the whole day blocked off for it or something. But you're going to be spending a lot of time trying to figure out basically how do I get this sort of 50 word box done? And then how do I do, in, in a way, writing a piece of SEO content is also a recursive activity because you start off with something like, I have to write a thousand words in this topic. Okay, well, here's my first 400 word block. And then I get these sort of smaller blocks to, to finish it out. And in each one, you're just trying to basically get a certain number of keywords in there. You're trying to maybe link a source here and there to get some sort of new credibility. And you have to make sure that it makes vague enough sense that it'll pass the muster of your editors. Yeah. They're trying to make the content quality better, which is good, but also not the name of the game. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And the other thing too, is that with what I had said about recursion, they had said that with this sort of process of going, like summing up editors and so on, but the repetition is really the whole point there, because without the repetition of the function calling itself, you can't, you get the result. So with content, you have, I mean, you have something similar going on in terms of repeating actions and trying to create something in a, an almost a mathematical way, instead of just writing it creatively, you're really trying to fulfill some kind of formula and you're trying to create this very specific result. In the paper, the two authors, they had talked about how they had said something about a craftsman who repeats a particular movement many times to produce a commodity does not bring to our mind the idea of someone who is acting mechanically. But then they say, however, if we interpret his repetitive movements as an end in itself, then we think of his acting as mechanical. And they say the crucial point in the idea of mechanical action is that the repetition is the aim of the action because it is then that the action becomes a step in a recursive process. And indeed, as we pointed out in the introduction, the intuitive definition of recursion is that of an operation whose aim is to operate on itself. So when you're writing it like a, a content mill, the way it works is you have a word count to hit. So in a way, this is very similar to a, recur like a recursive function that's trying to, say, get a sum of a certain number of integers, like what my example earlier of getting the entire sum of all the integers from zero to five. And so you have like a very concrete goal to reach it. And then, so then the next question is, how do I reach it? And the answer is you're basically going through this process of just continuously creating blocks of text that have, that are dense with a certain number of keywords. And then that sort of have some coherence between them and which try to answer commonly asked questions, but it's a process that's very, it's mechanical. And I think it, with that example from the, with the Toro and Nino paper, where they said that the, an operation whose aim is to operate on itself. In a lot of cases, what you're writing, even though you are given the goal of trying to get something to rank in Google to get somebody to visit a site, it might not ever actually get published. And in fact, I would say a pretty good sum of all content mill work is never published. 
So a lot of the agony you go through is not really connected to anything. It's just, its whole purpose is just itself, just to repeat, to repeat it and to do it, it. It is like a recursive problem because if I just write a computer code to some function to calculate the sum of zero to five, that's, that doesn't have any impact on the world, really. It's just something that happens locally for me. And it takes some logic on my part to put it all together, make sure it works. And writing a piece of content. Brain problem and you feel better afterwards. Yeah. And so you, you <laughs> did feel, so if you write a, like a 500 word article, you've put it all together. You've got your 50 word snippet at the top. You've got your body where you've got some keywords here and there, but in, in the end it might not get published. So it's, there's some similarity there. In that same paper, the Totoro and Nino, they talk about bureaucracy and the process of keeping records, administering laws, regulating things. And they talk about how algorithms are an important part of that. And that, and they say that bureaucracy forces people to become amenable to algorithmic processes. And one of their arguments there is that algorithms are not just there to classify information. They're, the purpose of bureaucracy is not classification. Its aim is to make the activities of an organization calculable through the adoption of formal rules that allow it to go in, de in a deterministic and unique way from a point in the process to the next one. So that's really a good description of how the whole logic of SEO content writing works is it, it basically tries to make the process of producing writing in particular calculable. It, it, instead of something that's just somebody has to have a spark of creativity, they have to know all these literary turns of phrase and be familiar with how narratives work and things of, of that sort on, on the, on the humanities side. Instead, the idea of SEO is writing is calculable. You can put, you can take these inputs. You can basically create in a way a function. You've got your keywords, you've got your format formatting with your different H2 and H3 headers. You've got your page layout with your, your, like the tags that you added to your headers. Yeah. Your... So those are all like inputs. And then it's so like you're writing a, a function for a computer program you've made that, that you've tried to make the whole process calculable. And uh, your content meal writing, it's for some background here, you imagine writing as something like you're being creative and you're drawing inspiration from your favorite authors and you're having fun with it. And with the content mill, not, none of that applies. You're basically, you're writing in a straight jacket because you have to hit a very a specific word count. You have to work in these keywords, which are often quite awkward to work into like in, in natural conversation. The way it plays out is often that SEO writing, even if you've got all these inputs, it's, it comes off as being very mechanical, even if you try to make it sound like it's written for a person. So I, I had found this, this website from a company called Datapine, and I didn't really go too deep into what they do, but they rank very highly for the keyword enterprise software. And Ooh, that's a bit yeah, good for yeah, them. Yeah, it's a good one. And uh, the, what they say, and this is very early on in the piece, they say, Enterprise software is a computer application that aims to assist big companies with several needs, such as data analytics, sales and marketing management, customer service, and many others. And then period, typically these tools are designed to serve a large number of users with high scalability and integration capabilities. So this has all the telltale signs of like... You literally said all of the keywords. <laughs> yeah, this is all of the telltale signs of, of the process of algorithmic writing because... First of all, you've got the first part is enterprise software as a computer application. That's incredibly 
stiff. No, it's not. It, it's like, it's, it doesn't really even go together because software is like an uncountable and application is singular. So you're talking yeah. about software, which doesn't have, doesn't make software sense. is neither plural nor singular really. And application is singular, but it's somehow, but in the eyes of the algorithm that's ranking it, this is actually good because you're saying the keyword is this. So like X is Y that's that they're always looking for that. Google is always looking for, if you're searching for some keyword, someone can just say this keyword is then definition. That's always like a gold mine for SEO. If somebody were to enter the search query, what is the best enterprise software? This would probably show up because it's something, because, you know, right away you get enterprise software as a computer application. So you get an answer to what is enterprise software. And, and then there's so many other keywords here. There's data analysis, sales and marketing management. Those are integrations. Yeah. And then, so you've got a mix of. I'm getting flashbacks. <laughs> oh, no. you got a mix of keywords and then also jargon. So keywords and jargon are so important to SEO because the keywords are what the algorithm is looking for. And then the jargon is what it makes it sound like you know what you're talking about. So it's like you talk about scalability and integration. If you read anything about cloud computing, scalability is always there. So it's always something like cloud is scalable. Cloud is more scalable than on-premises. And that's why the cloud is great. After a while, you get really numb to that and just keep putting those type of words in there. And sometimes, and sometimes as a content creator, you have to be really careful because you get so used to shoehorning keywords into places that sometimes your sentences don't make sense yeah and it's really it's interesting to me as being a what did i call it a recovering content creator mm -hmm. because now i work in an it department at a university and i actually have to use those words and they have to mean something new. <laughs> and so when i say like our cloud deployment is scalable i could have three to four different developers like knocking on my door saying, what is that? Yeah. What do you mean when you say that? Yeah. So there's, I'm not entirely sure where I was going with that, except to say that there's no real accountability in the content mill. Nobody's going to knock on your door and say, you didn't use this word correctly. It's more like, oh, you used the keyword. Great job. Yeah. The thing is, I mean, that the algorithm doesn't know whether or not what you are talking about or not. So right. that's really, it, it seems almost too trivial to mention that because it goes back to what I was saying about how machines are dumb. Because they're just like, they see these words, they know that cloud computing or cloud instance and scalability are often mentioned together, but they don't know if the author is really a subject matter expert. Because if I was trying to shop for enterprise software and I saw somebody saying that enterprise software is a computer application, that would not inspire confidence in me at all. To pick up on that bureaucracy point again, another quote they had was that, quote, bureaucracy aspires to transform the production of goods and services into algorithms that is calculable processes. When you're organizing information, you're trying to, what does a bureaucracy do? It, it organizes and manages information essentially like records, archives, and this very much applies even to the digital world. And you could think of Facebook as a giant archive of just of people's photos and writing. That's a very basic way of thinking of it. But in a way, Facebook is its own bureaucracy because it's turned all of these life events and sentiments and everything into just basically a bunch of algorithmic things. When you're talking about algorithms or calculable processes, you're, all of this content is like on content that ranks highly on Facebook or ranks highly on Google. It was produced with the machine in mind. So if you can't make, you can't please the machine, you can't rank and 
you, nobody's going to see your content. The machine is your most important audience. And it's, you think about how like the content, the content mill world has evolved over time, but it's become much more automated and algorithmically driven in, in recent yep. years. And they actually do talk about that in, and not in relation to the content industry, but in relation to machines in this essay. So they talk about how the dominance of algorithmic procedures is not really the consequence of machines coming about, rather that there was already this formalization of processes that then was amplified by the by specific mechanical equipment that was meant to make an already existing formal process even more automated and efficient. So one of the ways you can see this in a very literal way is that the word manufacture literally means to make by hand. So there was already these hand, these manual, literally, because manual means hand, processes for making things. And then the machines came in and took it to a totally different level. So with content, you did have this content production has become more formalized over time because you're early on in when Google was just launched in 1998, it, a lot of the top ranking results were just like people's blogs. And so you, you would ask the question, something like, what is, what, how does shampoo work or something? And you would probably just land on somebody's blog page and they might be just giving you a general background on it. But then over time, people figured out there's certain things that we can put into it that will definitely make it rank higher. And so that's, that's SEO. That's looking at, well, what are all these pages that Google is ranking highly? What do they have in common and how can we reverse engineer that and make our own page? as high rank. Now there's a whole big industry. Right? Yeah. So yeah, that took off. And then with that, you then got all these other sort of algorithmic tools that came in. So keyword research platforms or social media management apps and different things that took it where you're making the process of creating the content even more calculable. You're making it more and more scientific, or at least that's the illusion is that you're making something that is going to be, you have a certain input you can put into it and you're going to get a certain output out of it. So, cause if I run my recursive equation, I put in the number five and I'm trying to get the sum zero to five, yeah, I'm always going to get a 15. So, I mean, there's some sort of logic here with algorithms is if I just put in enterprise software as my keyword, my output would then be ranking on page one of Google. And so that's uh, the logic. And to some degree it does work. The SEO experts, they're not totally making this up. I mean, they, even though Google's algorithm is proprietary, I mean, they, there are people who by, by you know, reverse engineering and by knowing people at Google and so on, they have figured out what does work. But at the same time, there, there's a cost to this. And I think the cost is that, well, as many people have, I think a growing number of people have thought is that Google's results have gotten worse over time. And, and also that the content itself feels like it's not really written for a person. So one thing. Huh, I wonder why. <laughs> yeah. And the irony is that Google actually does one of their pieces of advice is write for a person. <laughs> and you see this also in like style guides, like Microsoft's official style guide says, I think it's something like, like a human or something very odd like that, but it's like, that's amazing. It's, I it, it's kind of, it's almost, uh, what do you call it? A tautology because like, you really can't write any other way because you are human. So, are, I, I mean, yeah. but I, on the other hand, some of the writing that you see out there with SEO enterprise software as an application, it sounds very stiff and it sounds like something that wasn't quite, that was never really 
meant for a human's consumption. It was actually meant, like I said, to fulfill a certain set of mechanical conditions. Google, their one of their original goals was what they said was they wanted to organize the world's or I think it's organize the world's information is what their goal was. And so that sounds that that fits with the Toro and Nino essay about how bureaucracy is something where it tries to introduce algorithmic logic to events and goods and services, tries to classify them in a certain way where they can all be broken down into steps that are easily interpreted by a machine in particular. When we go on Google, are we, are we getting what we're seeing? Is it something like, is this really what's the most popular content out there? Is this really like what I want or in a way, is this just what Google wants and and has it always been what Google has wanted? And and so instead of Google adapting to the way, like what, what people are looking for, how they're asking questions or how they're spending time on sites, what if instead of that, that all the content we're seeing is actually people putting in a performance to please Google. And so like Google has been shaping all of this from the beginning. And so instead of us like having control over we, the way we search for things somehow affects Google, that Google is making us behave in a certain way by having these different restrictions on how it ranks content. So they cover this when they say that the, they say, quote, the order, so like the order is sort of like the classification produced by the logic of calculation generates the content of the datum in the very moment that it places the datum within an order, period. Its properties are the result of the ordering process, not vice versa. So what it's saying, what they're saying there is that when something gets classified or ordered, like in Google, so Google ranks it, that the properties of that thing come from the ranking process. And so it's like the thing that's most important about it is something that's been assigned to it by the classification system. And this is something that I wanted to dive into because this is fascinating to me. It's essentially saying that the Google is not actually classifying this content. Google is not providing like an order or a taxonomy for the content. The order and the taxonomy is creating the content. Yeah, exactly. Because you have to create the right kind of content in order to be placed inside mm-hmm. the taxonomy yeah and to me this it it rings true like for a lot of things but specifically i talked a lot about tiktok in the last part of this episode yeah. but i know a lot of creators are i think a lot could be said about the tiktok algorithm and story surrounding actually i read an article the new york times did called how tiktok reads your mind like <laughs> It seems just mystical, right? Yeah. Which it's not. It's ones and zeros. But the a lot of creators are saying, like, if I don't create this specific kind of content, the algorithm does not prioritize me. Mm. I have made, like, two videos about crochet. (laughs) Yes, that is me. I'm the grandmother. Yeah. (laughs) And I have, like, they're my best videos. They're not. Let's be clear. (laughs) They have 200. Obama voice. Like, let me be clear. Let me be clear. <laughs> it's not great, but those would be my best videos. And if I go and make some other kind of random content, the algorithm is not going to push that because it has already deemed my uh, XYZ narrative content worthy of being pushed. Yeah. And so that kind of reinforces this idea that the algorithm itself, and we talked a lot about this before, about giving 
these things agents, mm -hmm. giving the algorithm agency, we're giving Google agency. Mm -hmm. The algorithm itself is creating the content mm -hmm. because without the algorithm, the content cannot exist. Yeah. It's which is way too existential for me <laughs> at this point in my life, but that's where we're at. Yeah. The naive conception of it, of how this would work would be something like I produce this content, Google neutrally categorizes it and be like, this is, this is something about fixing a barn. So here it goes into the fixing the barn category. But in reality, you don't really know how it's classifying that. It, it has its own rules already in place for how it's going to classify something. It's if you go to put your podcast in a certain category in like Apple, there's only a certain number of categories. And so sometimes, and sometimes none of them are a good fit. I have to pick one though. And so that category is assigning a value to my content. Another really good example of how categorization creates content and assigns value to it is in the gay slash straight binary. So this separation of identities is something that I think a lot of people assume has been around since time immemorial and is a fact of nature, but really nothing could be further from the truth because in the history of sexuality by the French philosopher Michel Foucault, he talks about how the entire notion of an identity built around one's sexual and your preferences is the product of the rise of new various administrative states and bureaucracies over the last several hundred years. So when those bureaucracies sprung up and began gathering information on people, trying to classify them, trying to put them into the bureaucratic system, that's where those identities came from. And then once those identities were created as categories for the state to monitor, people then shaped their entire identities to fit into those categories. So from that, we got gay and straight and bisexual and so on. And so if you look at it in a way, we couldn't have gotten those identities if the bureaucracy had not set up the information gathering apparatus and the categories that it needed to create those identities. So just imagine going back in time to ancient Greece. You meet somebody in the street and you say, hey, I'm straight or hey, I'm gay. They would probably have had absolutely no idea what you were talking about. And the reason they would have had no idea is because the ancient Greek state did not have the bureaucracy, didn't have the information gathering capabilities to create those categories. So there was no category in which to pigeonhole one's identity. Everybody was the same regardless of what they did in terms of their preferences. If we take a step back, what we're seeing is that bureaucracy and the existence of categories is like a, a flame that's drawing a moth towards it or like a, a magnet that's attracting another metal. It's what's creating the content within these identities because you would not have really a coherent gay or straight identity if there wasn't an entire bureaucratic apparatus built around trying to gather different demographic and sociological information about people. The, the very classification system that is seemingly neutral it's actually having some kind of effect on it. Somebody said once that like on Twitter, just to switch gears a bit, like someone would talk, you would see like on a tab on Twitter that something was trending. And then people would say something like, wow, I can't believe that Bruce Lee is trending. And that would actually be the only sort of content they would ever see about that trending topic was some way talking about the fact that it was trending. And it, like Twitter, I could talk about this Twitter, Twitter just decided it was trending. And then that sort of 
became like a top-down effect instead of people were organically talking about this, but instead Twitter just said, this is trending. And then all of a sudden everybody was like, wow, I didn't know that was trending. And the entire concept of SEO was like, well, I have to fit into these constraints to rank, rank, to rank for, to rank, to have my article rank. And so that entire classification system of what does SEO worthy content look like, that's already actually given my content, it's essential properties before it's really even ever written. So it's like the, the entire fact that Google orders things based on these criteria of keyword density of dwell time and so on, all of that is already, it's already baked in. And so that's really what's important is that the, it's not really what is coming from the author so much as it is what Google is assigning value to and how it's decided to classify these things. And one way you could look at it is that we think of Google as like a tool for finding your answers and information. But in another way, you could look at it as the reverse that actually we're sort of Google's tools and Google is using us to get basically training data for its own algorithms. So it's in a way we're the tools and Google is the operator. There we go. Yeah. That's the title of the Yeah, thing. it's <laughs> we're the it's and they actually in the essay, the two authors, they talk about how and this is I think really in a way the most memorable quote of the entire essay. They say that quote, the encapsulation of individuals within algorithmic steps is implicit in the concept of bureaucracy. Thus, in this case, the algorithm is the cause of the problem and hence cannot be its solution. Human beings cannot use the bureaucratic algorithm to solve the problem because it is they who are the tools of the algorithm and not vice versa. So the algorithm is basically looking at all human activities, things that can break down into algorithmic steps, things that can be calculated, things that can be stored. And really, I think this is, if you're trying, if we're trying to figure out one of the reasons why the word content became so prevalent is that I think that if everything has to be calculable and algorithmic, it all has to have a common name too. And so that name is content and the name content implies something is digital. It implies it can be calculated. It can be ranked. It can be sorted. It can be classified and all of it, all of that can be done by a machine. So I think that's the reason why the word content became so ubiquitous starting in, in the nineties and especially through the two thousands as everything became digitized. It's just a painting and a book are both just ones and zeros. And a, an algorithm, whether it's on Google, whether it's on Facebook, it, it can rank that, it can sort it, it can classify it. And then by doing so, it can also give it all kinds of properties and learn from it. And then by learning from that, it can feed you recommendations. It can give you search results. So it's, uh, it's, and the other, yeah, the other thing too about the, about how, what if we are really Google's tools or Facebook's tools instead of the other way around? is that I, I had found this tweet where someone who, who was talking about Facebook had said, it was something like Facebook was going to create a content team that would train AI recommendation systems to help users discover the most interesting, relevant, and personalized content across Facebook and Instagram. So the sort of issue here is that discover is very much a misnomer because Facebook is putting this in front of you. It's the agent here is not the person looking for the content. It's the AI systems in the team that's training them and how this is they're teaching this AI to put stuff in front of you and to have you consume it. So everything you search for is somehow feeding this engine and then it's going to feed you back something that it thinks you want. 
But really the agent here, in a way you're not in control because even from the get-go, the AI is in charge and what it has classified as relevant or noteworthy is what's going to win out. But it's, and then by playing along with it, you're basically feeding it more data. So in a way you're its tool and it's in charge instead of the other way around where you're just using it for some goal that actually it's using you and your, what you're doing in your activity as its own your training data. So it's, I know that. I think that I, yeah. I feel like there's a real see here to say, oh my God, Skynet. But yeah. I, it's a little, it's a little more nuanced than that. Do I think that AI is sentient and going to take over the planet? No. But do I also think that yes, content is being used to feed these AI systems mm-hmm. in order to create more content so that we're basically consuming content 24-7. That's the goal. I think it's reductive. I just wanted to get out in front of that. Mm-hmm. Like It's reductive to to talk about these AI systems as, oh, no, yeah. take over the world, right? Yeah. Like, it already has question. Yeah, and, and, but I think the most important... <laughs> it's not in like the way that we're expecting. I could just go on forever about AI, but yeah, there is a famous quote that AI is whatever hasn't happened yet. So if something is like something like optical character recognition, where you can take like a PDF, like a, say you scanned a page of a book and you want to be able to turn that text into selectable text that you can cut and paste and manipulate pretty easily. You have to do that. You have to undergo a process called optical character recognition. And at one point that was considered AI. But now if you told somebody that you thought OCR was AC, was AI, they would think you were just like a fool because it's considered something that's totally trivial. So whenever somebody talks about what AI is, it's always something that is around the corner and it's never quite there yet. And then as, as soon as something becomes concrete, it's no longer considered AI. So when you look at what people talk about as AI, usually it's things like self-driving cars or like a machine that can write an essay just like a person. So these things are all what these use cases have in common is that really they're not practical yet and they might never be, but the By using the word AI, there's always this implication that maybe at some point they will be. And the very end of the, of when I was at the content mill, AI startups were like a really huge part of the client base. And it was things like, how do we automate medical billing or something? Or how do we automate some kind of function in a factory that's currently manual or requires a bunch of disparate systems? But the thing about AI is that it's something that really, and people will definitely disagree with this, it doesn't just emerge and evolve exogenously and and autonomously. It has to be you're trained in a way. So it has to be fed something. And the way in which it's trained and how is really what makes, that's the whole ball game. So it's a very human process. And I thought about this even with script, like the way the podcast software where you can record your voice and then use that recording as the basis for an overdub. So you record like 10 minutes and then it can, from that sample, it can extrapolate and try and do overdubs of basically anything you type. And I just thought about what is this data being used for? It's probably being used for some voice assistant or something. And they just made me think about like how with content, it's what is the point of writing? Why bother writing SEO content? And why do we have to restrict ourselves to the way SEO is written? We all know it's like, it's artificial and it's very, it's not natural in any way, but in a way where 
we're doing what Google wants. We're giving, yeah. Again, yeah. The, the algorithm is creating the need for the content. Yeah. And it's, if you do it in analog terms, it's imagine you went to some library and the library had very strict rules on like how long any book that could be. And it could be like when, you know, our library doesn't stock any books above 554 pages or something like that. And oh. every book has to have a, a preface that's 600 words long and no, no longer. And that's basically what Google is. And you think about what we had talked about earlier about cl how classification really, the classification is what gives the content its essence. And that's really, you really see it in, in that type of example because, well, every, everything that's in that, that imaginary library, it's only there because it fits into that classification system. The classification system has already decided what type of material is going to be in there because like anything that's inherently long-winded is just not going to fit or anything that's you know, too short is not going to fit. So it's already made a decision and something similar has gone on with, with SEO and the content mills are more than happy to oblige Google. And that's really their whole purpose is to, is to make, to make Google amenable content. And the whole thing with hits, uh, and you can see that like the con content mills have made this content very, they've made it mechanical. And by doing so, that has a lot of consequences for the people who produce it, of course. So, because when you're producing for a machine, and in a way, you're expected to be a machine too. So, it, yes, absolutely. It, it's your how can you make a machine happy? You have to produce at this rate that's just beyond what a human could do. And you're sitting there and you're like, how do I write 4,000 words today? And it was, I have to admit, sometimes when I was working there, I had this thought of, what if I just use some kind of AI program to try and dictate the entire piece? Like, how far off would that be? Or if I use, like, the voice typing in Google Docs, can I just did something stream of consciousness? Could I turn that into a piece of content? But then just the very fact that I was, I thought that those mechanical solutions where I'm, like, literally relying on the recursive functions of some application to help me out. That's the, yeah, that really would, would, would hit home for me was that how mechanized my, my activity had become like a Totoro and Nino had said that if the repetition is the end in itself and that's the whole aim, I was just repeating myself all over again, every day going through writing these different blocks of text and trying to make them fit together into a larger piece. And then thinking I could maybe do this algorithmically. That was a sign that is it just totally moved beyond any sort of human capacity? And it's no wonder, it's no wonder that people burn out because yeah, you're expected to be a machine. So, and because it's almost like a machine communicating with a machine. It's like, I think in one of my newsletters, I said that the content world was almost like Vector Man, which was a Sega Genesis game from, it was a late era Genesis game from like 90, 95 or 96. And the premise of Vector Man is that, that the earth has been abandoned, but people have moved on to these other star systems and earth is was left behind us a bunch of robots who are fighting to clean up the earth and uh, but it's all there's no humans involved it's just there's the i think the villain his name is is raster and the for the protagonist is named vector man so it's at the time i was getting get the fact that vector graphics versus raster graphics but uh, yeah anyway it was but it's all machines and so it's but then at the end it says vector man has made the earth safe for mankind again or something but it's like in the meantime it's all disconnected from any sort of human interest or human story. And in a way, the content world is, is moved that way because you have, you have this totally algorithmic classification system. And then you have on the other side, people who are expected to be like machines or who are using machines to, to produce their own labor. They're relying on 
either a keyword research and various marketing automation software, or they're, or ideally they're thinking maybe even an AI could write an entire article. I know a new year, you see that every now and then some site will say, oh, this story was totally written by a computer and, uh, but it's a machine's world. So <laughs> yeah. yeah. And all that's very, yeah. Bleak. <laughs> yeah. That's one way to look at it. I remember feeling fulfilled sometimes by my work there. And I, this has nothing to do with machines. <laughs> Just, I don't know. It was a difficult job and sometimes I wondered how I did it. Yeah. That's... But I did want to say we, I remember it being drilled into us that we were not to self-plagiarize, but the whole process seems like you're self-plagiarizing. Yeah. Well, because you had these snippets in your head that you write over and over again. Because we, you're doing that recursive thing where you're writing. The and yet, what is recursion if not self-plagiarism enduring? <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> In a way, that's what recursion is. It's self-plagiarism because you're. It's a function that calls itself. As literally, that's how a lot of people define recursion. Is that the function mm -hmm. keeps calling itself until it reaches a point where it doesn't need to. I mean, it's. But in a way, self in computer science, recursion is, is efficient because. I believe it saves memory and it's more, it's considered more elegant. And really, if you think about it in writing, it's a self-defense mechanism because it's like, if I have to hit this quota of words, what's the most efficient way to do that? One way is just to take something I wrote on this exact same topic literally yesterday and just reward it a little bit instead of having to reinvent the wheel every time. It's, I think philosophically, I think the idea of self-plagiarism is a little shaky because the crime of plagiarism is always that you were taking somebody else's ideas and passing them off as your own. But no, I, and then also another thing about plagiarism is that it's totally filtered through the idea of copyright. Because if something is in the public domain, it doesn't really make sense to say that it's plagiarized because it's nobody's going to make a claim seeking royalties for it or anything. So it is in a way, I don't know, it's kind of a tangent, but I mean, it's, it seems like it's just another way of organizing content. Yeah. And it's, it is, I guess one, one reason people do care about plagiarism also is that the classification systems that have been built through these algorithms are definitely looking for that. And then there's a whole cottage industry of plagiarism detection software. And uh, funnily enough, which you could write content for the plagiarism detection. Software. Well, it was funny because I saw something about how I think it was Proctorio, which makes some kind of, yeah. I don't know, you probably, I mean, you're in the education yep. world in Proctorio, but they got sued by somebody over a patent and the patent was something about plagiarism software. <laughs> I was like, wow, this is, it's not really recursion, but it's irony for sure. Getting, getting sued <laughs> for infringing on a patent from plagiarism software. So it's, yeah. But I think somebody used to say that, I think it was, I don't know if Google still does this. It probably doesn't because this would be too weird for, oh yeah, it does do it actually. So if you actually search Google for the word recursion, it will give you the, did you mean? And it says, did you mean recursion? <laughs> so, <laughs> oh, really? yeah. And oh, that's yeah, fun. so that actually, that's actually I, a nice cool I have joke. to give them, Good job. I have to give them credit for that. They may be like an all-consuming monster who's using our writing as its own diet or self-improvement training data. But uh, that is a pretty clever joke. I have to give it to them. So. It's very good. I appreciate yeah. it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I, uh, I really enjoyed this kind of walk down memory lane with the Google and the SEO and talking about how machines, we're, we are the machines that are feeding the machines. Yeah. So that was, that was really cool. Thanks for sharing that with me. I hope everybody 
enjoyed that and we will be putting out another episode here soon thanks for listening thanks for listening and we'll see you next time